1: This week, Assyriologist Irvin Finkel on his book The Ark Before Noah, and then astrobiologist Lucian Walkowitz on the Temple of Dendur. Before we begin today's show, the message from our sponsors bit Little Atoms is a podcast about books. You like podcasts, you like books, so why not listen to books in a form that's more like a podcast? Little Atoms has teamed up with Audible.co.uk to offer you a free audiobook of your choosing. All you have to do is register for a one-month free trial to claim your free audiobook, and there are over 80,000 to choose from. That audiobook is yours to keep even if you decide to cancel after the trial period. There's loads of books on Audible by Little Atoms guests. This week I particularly recommend Frank by John Ronson. Indeed, all of John's books are on there, read by John himself. Go to www.audible.co.uk backslash little atoms. The little atoms bit is all one word. And if you sign up like that, not only do you get a free audiobook, but I get a little bit of money as well. So everybody wins. Now let's get on with the show. Irving Finkel is an archaeologist and an Assyriologist, currently Assistant Keeper of Ancient Mesopotamian Scripts, Languages and Cultures in the Department of the Middle East at the British Museum. He's also an expert on the history of board games and the founder of the Great Diary Project. He is the author of numerous books, most recently The Ark Before Noah, Decoding the Story of the Flood, which we're going to be talking about mainly today. So Irving, welcome to Little Athens, Great, of all. I'm glad to be here. I've mentioned the book is called Before Noah, Decoding the Story of the Flood, and that's part of what it's about. But and I think in the main it's a, it's a love letter to, um, to ancient languages, to cuneiform, and to how you got involved with that whole thing. So we're going to talk about the language first. What is cuneiform?
2: Well, cuneiform is in fact a writing system, it's not a language, it's a mm. writing system, and it's jolly easy to forget that they're different. Sure. So it's a way of writing a language, and the languages which were written in it were, on the one hand, Sumerian, and the other, Babylonian. So these are the ancient and very dead languages, which were spoken in ancient Mesopotamia mm-hmm. from maybe 3000 BC, down until about the 2nd century AD, and then all that changed, and Aramaic and Greek and alphabetic writing took over. So what cuneiform is is a kind of writing which existed for a very long time and was very successful before the alphabet was invented. Now, the thing about an alphabet, which everybody takes for granted, but they don't often think about it, is that you have 26 simple marks that you can do with a biro. And by combining those marks together, you can spell easily all the words in your language or even all the words in another language by ear. They're a very good device for recording speech, Mm -hmm. grammar, vocabulary and everything as you hear it. So the alphabet was a great bit of progress for mankind, and it didn't really catch on, so to speak, until about 1000 BC, so quite a long time ago, but only as far back as then. And cuneiform writing, like Egyptian hieroglyphs, is one of the important systems which existed before the mm-hmm. alphabet. So you have to imagine a kind of writing where nobody thought in alphabetic terms. Now, the biggest difference, apart from the way it looks, which is another matter, but the biggest difference in how it works is this. When you have an alphabet, you can write a vowel, A-E-I-O-U, or any one of the consonants as a single letter on its own, so B, F, M, and so forth. And then you can combine the vowels with the consonants to make the spelling. That's clear. But with the Babylonian language, which we call cuneiform, it wasn't possible to write consonants on their own. Mm -hmm. Conceptually, they saw parts of speech, the things that they heard, as a consonant with a vowel either in front of it or behind it. Mm-hmm. So, for example, where we have the letter B, they couldn't do that. So they had a sign for ob and a sign for boo mm-hmm. and for ab and ba and ib and b and, b, and so forth all their consonants were dressed with a vowel before or after. Mm-hmm. So that means, instead of having 26 like we do, already you can see there were a lot more of them. Mm-hmm. So that's basically how the writing worked. You had all these different signs, and then you had a long word, I don't know, like museum, for example. That you In English you put M-U-S-E-U-M, that's straightforward. But if you were writing with cuneiform script, you would have one sign for mu and one for z and one for um so you would spell sign one mu then z and um and then in your head you kind of push them together, so you spell out the word museum. Mm-hmm. So it's what we call syllabic writing, as opposed to alphabetic. It's syllabary, where each consonant has a vowel in front or behind. So that's kind of how it works theoretically. You
1: mentioned hieroglyphics, the Egyptian hieroglyphics that people were familiar with, but what would be the most modern analogue? I mean, are things like Chinese and Japanese?
2: Well, right? things like Chinese and Japanese are a bit similar. They're not mm. fully mm-hmm. similar, but they're something like it, much closer than this is to a modern modern alphabetic writing, for sure. So the thing is, cuneiform is a funny-sounding word. Most people seem to go through life without ever encountering Mm. one of these cuneiform inscriptions written on a bit of clay. But how does that look? Well, the word cuneus in Latin, which is where cuneiform Mm -hmm. derives, means wedge. And in the 19th century, when these things first came to light and scholars encountered what was obviously ancient writing, they noticed that all the signs were made up of lines at different angles which had a kind of triangular head a bit like a slice of cheese. And because they wrote on clay tablets to do this writing system, it's quite clear why it happened. Because if you take a thing like a chopstick, this Mm -hmm. is the best way to imagine it, and you press a chopstick gently into a piece of clay... It makes a line, and at the top there's a kind of nick which looks a bit like the head of a wedge. Mm -hmm. So when these things first came to light in the 1840s, they found hundreds of them, in fact thousands, of clay tablets covered in this funny writing, and they thought, well, it's made up of wedges, so we'll call it cuneiform. Mm -hmm. And what happened was this. Sometime around probably 3500 BC, or in or around that period, a very remote time from us, the very first experiments were made in some kind of writing where people made marks that when you looked at them they record the sounds of the words they were trying to communicate so for example if you draw a picture of a hen when you read it hen comes into your mind Mm -hmm. so when they started out they did pictures and they are the sort of pictures which we can even understand they're a bit like the sort of thing children do when they're about two and a half or three with a pencil, very elementary drawings of things which stood for what they looked like. And if you try and write a language like that, you find it's impossible because you can do a milk bottle, or you can do a railway train, but you can't do a drawing of much, or angry, or hot, Mm -hmm. and things like that, or any kind of abstracts, or all you could do is basic nouns. So while they started off just drawing a picture of what they meant, some genius, Mm -hmm. some very, very clever person, at one point or another, had this idea that you could do a drawing, and it would give you an idea of what it meant. But the sound of what the thing looked like could exist independent of the meaning. Mm-hmm. For example, let me think of a good example. Let's say in, in English, this idea. You want to write the word inclined, mm-hmm. okay? Meaning as an angle. Yeah. Okay, well we do it I N K and so forth and yes. so forth. I N C I mean inclined. Yeah. In the Babylonian system, you could write the first bit ink by drawing a bottle of ink. So the person would look at it and think, what's well, all this? Bottle of ink, bottle of ink, what's ink? And then you think, ah, this ink is the sound, it's the first sound of the word. And then you go on to the next part, whatever that would be, a line or something, and you say, oh, I read it, I read it, and I understand it. And that's the sort of thing they did, and they made a big leap from silly pictures, which were very limited, to an extremely fluent, highly sophisticated writing system where they could write the Sumerian language or the Babylonian language rather easily and, in fact, many others as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Let's talk about how that developed, then, because the writing system, I mean, and I guess the languages are obviously developing in parallel as well, as people invent new things and invent words for things, but the writing system itself, I presume the oldest tablets that we've found differ in complexity to the latest tablets that we've found. That's
2: a good question. They differ in complexity and also in the shape of the signs, Mm -hmm. because as this kind of writing was in use for three millennia, for 3,000 years, you can be sure that the signs as they started out, when they were still a bit like pictures, Mm -hmm. 3,000 years later, when they were just about to become extinct, they looked really rather different. They became streamlined, the shapes differed, and sometimes you can see a connection, sometimes you can't, but 3,000 years is a very long time for something to be in continuous use. So it's true that the writing, the signs over that period did alter slightly, not drastically. The other thing is, as you say, the language itself evolves because if you try and read something written by Shakespeare or Chaucer or something even earlier, the further back you go, even in your own language, the more obscurities there are, Mm -hmm. the vocabulary has changed, uh, the grammatical system might be different, and so forth. And so it is with ancient languages. So when you have the Sumerian language and the Babylonian language in use for such a long time, they also gradually change over time. Now, I'll tell you something interesting about these two languages. They're both completely dead like dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. There's nobody alive in the world who can speak their languages. It hasn't been since about 2nd century AD. Mm -hmm. But we know quite a lot about them because these clay tablets, which the population of ancient Mesopotamia, used as a writing system, survive in the ground in unimaginable numbers. So in the 19th century, when they first started proper excavations, they found them in great quantity and they were just perfect because if the Sumerians or the Babylonians had written on parchment or paper, some kind of paper or a vegetal (laughs) surface or wood, everything would have rotted away in the ground and we would have nothing. But because they like to use clay from the river and impress the signs on this clay and dry it in the sun, almost everything survives. So we have have loads and loads and loads of documents.
1: And this museum has...
2: 130,000.
1: Something like
2: that, quite a lot. (laughs) i looked at a good number of them. Now, the thing is this. We've got two languages side by side. One is Sumerian and one is Babylonian. And we know that Sumerian was there from before 3,000. And we know that something like Babylonian was there quite soon after. So both these languages existed side by side. Mm -hmm. Now, the interesting thing is that Sumerian is not related to any other ancient language or any modern language in Mm -hmm. other words it exists in a kind of vacuum it's not like with most languages we can say that there's a a relative like latin italian spanish and french they're all connected or polish and russian they're connected and things like that most languages belong to a family tree Mm -hmm. and a family group but sumerian doesn't but the babylonian language is a Semitic tongue, which means although it's extinct, people who study that have the benefit of modern Semitic Mm -hmm. languages like Hebrew, Arabic, Aramaic, things of that kind. So there are these two languages which are totally different from one another in every possible way, written with the same writing mm-hmm. system. So if you see a cuneiform tablet suddenly in front of you, you can't tell whether it's in the funny Sumerian language or in the Babylonian language until you start reading it because they mm-hmm. use the same writing system for both languages.
1: But bearing in mind that we can't... So we can read these things, and we'll get on to how we learn to read them and how we read them a bit later on in the interview. We can read these things, but we can't speak them. Nobody can speak the languages. That was the distinction you made, wasn't it? So how how can we tell the difference? How do you tell the difference between those two languages?
2: Well, the thing is this, because the writing system is syllabic, because it spells out the words, if you learn the cuneiform signs, when you have a tablet in front of you, you just start reading out loud the syllables in front of you, one after the other. And when you've done that for a few signs, you realise that the sense that comes out of it is either shows that it must be in the Sumerian language or it must be in the Babylonian language. So, for example, if you have a bit of a law code, mm-hmm. if the first sign says Shumma, then that's the Babylonian word for if. But if the first line says tukumbi, then that's the Sumerian word for if, so you would know it was in one language or the other. So it sounds a bit strange, but it is not as bad as you might think. Now, when people wrote these tablets, they did one or two things which were rather uncomfortable for us, because when they invented the signs, when you had a sign that had a given sound, they didn't restrict things as much as they might have done. So if you have a particular sound, like, I don't know, ud, for example, there isn't only one sign that can be read ud, but there sometimes are many And the reasons are because where these signs derive from originally, it's a rather complicated thing. But it Mm -hmm. means that if you're a scribe who wants to write the sound Ud, if you wanted to write Robin Hood and you had a who and an Ud, for example, you wanted to write the sound Ud, there were lots of different signs that you could choose. This is a bit confusing, especially when you're a beginner. And the Mm -hmm. other thing is this, that a sign which might have a value Ud could very easily have several other values which were nothing to do with it. So everything was what you might call polyvalent. In mm-hmm. other words, it meant more than one thing, meant lots of things. So when you begin to learn cuneiform, it is a bit overpowering. But after a while, you get the hang of it, and your mind begins to think the way these ancient people's minds must have worked, and you begin to learn it. They had one other characteristic, which is a bit mean that when you wrote your inscription, you never left a gap between the words. Now, mm-hmm. yep. That, for an English person or a person who used to alphabetic writing, is very bizarre indeed, but it was their characteristic that they just joined everything up in a continuous stream. Mm-hmm. So when you first learn to read it, you've got to know all the possibilities of how each sign is read and choose the right one in order to get a word so you can tell where one word stops and the next one starts, and that's quite a challenge. I'm Jonathan Meads and
1: this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. The other thing that's quite cruel from my perspective is I couldn't write it because I'm left-handed.
2: Well, that's a very interesting matter. When you actually do this strip, when you look at it carefully, at first it looks like chickens' feet that have just been scrabbling around in the mud, but it's not really that bad. But when you focus in, you see that the wedge shapes, the wedge parts, really only go in one of three directions. So You can have a vertical one that looks like a line going north to south, or you can have a horizontal one which is going west to east, or you can have a diagonal Now, the thing is, you can write a vertical one with your right or your left Mm -hmm. hand, but if you try to write a horizontal one with your left hand, you find that you have to bend over backwards Mm -hmm. in such a way that it's impossible to do it. So, after a lot of experience, I've had the rather simple idea that, in fact, you can't write cuneiform with your left hand. So, what happened in antiquity, if you were a child who grew up in a family where you happened to end up for one reason or another, left-handed, when you went to school, if you did go to school and you tried doing it, you would be beaten sufficiently violently and sufficiently regularly that in the end you would decide it would be simpler just to use your right hand after all, which is a fairly sensible <laughs> kind of policy, I think.
1: Let's talk then about, you've mentioned that you know getting into these languages and, and being able to decode them has enabled us to get into the mind of these people that was writing them. So, I want to talk about who these people were. But before we do that, it seems like a quite simple and obvious question, but why they invented this thing at all? It would be lovely to think that this was for art for writing poetry or for expressing love letters but it's basically to do with accounting I'm
2: afraid it is I'm afraid that however you dress this up that is the hard truth about it and the first thing is to establish that our very very beginning bits of writing let's say they're 3400 BC the very beginning bits now before that time For a huge spread of of time, one can hardly conceive of it. There must have been languages already that, you know, I don't know whether cavemen grunted at one another, but for hundreds of hundreds of thousands of years, back into prehistory, there must have been languages. So people were communicating with vocabulary and grammar and sense and subtlety long before writing, as we understand it, came about in the cities of ancient Sumer, where the Sumerians lived, which is between the Euphrates and Tigris River in the Mm -hmm. south of what we call Iraq today. In those times, around 3000 or earlier power and social structure was more or less vested in independent sort of what we sometimes call city-states, that's to say a conglomeration with a central authority and storage facilities for grain and temples and, and all this kind of stuff where a lot of people had a set job to do and they needed their wages or their food rations and they needed someone to be in charge of bookkeeping to make sure everything was above board and it's in that environment that probably where numbers and ingoing and outgoing goods were too numerous to be recorded by memory, that some kind of step towards recording things in a written way first began. Mm -hmm. And I think it's right to say that it was the Inland Revenue who were the first to spot the potential of writing and recording and Mm -hmm. who, as it were, started it off. Of course, it wasn't very long before some rather extraordinary things happened. One of them was that very early in the process we find on clay tablets from Iraq what we call lexical texts. that's to say bits of dictionary. And we can see that the writing was in its nascent form, they were isolating and deciding what the sign repertoire consisted of, that they were recorded in lists and the way they did it because they didn't know about the alphabet and never would they couldn't use our system Mm -hmm. they put together lists of things that made sense so for example where they had lots of gods with god names they put all the names of gods on one tablet and they put all the things made of wood and all the things made of reed together so that they had everything in an orderly way and this was important because as the as the signs were being decided and agreed on it was necessary that everybody knew what they were and that they were filed somewhere where they will be retrievable and there could be instruction in younger scribes in due course to carry on the same activity. So we have almost together with the birth of proper writing, the move from picture writing mm-hmm. to sound writing so to speak, we have these dictionaries appearing and quite soon after that there is also literature. So anybody who had an idea that writing might have been invented for the benefit of poets. It's not totally black. It was not long before some people realised that this new facility... Which have been developed had other uses, mm. not just bookkeeping and manual returns, but also recording stories about the gods, events of mythological type, religious texts, maybe songs and hymns and things of this kind. So, from quite early on, maybe 2800, uh, Assyriologists who work on this sort of early inscription, written on tablets of clay as always, have in front of them these texts which we can see are literary. They They have the names of gods. We can see there's a verb here and a verb there. We might not be able to translate them properly, Mm -hmm. but it is surely literature. So I think you have this thing. You have a picture writing becomes proper sound writing, Mm -hmm. and the corpus of material goes from pure bookkeeping into dictionary keeping and into literature. So by about 2,800 or 2,700, the writing system was fully developed, more or less, it was very flexible, and people could use it to record a great range of things, mm-hmm. which, in fact, they jolly well did,
1: much <laughs> to our gratitude. You talk in the book about how, well, the scribes that were making the marks, that were making the cuneiform tablets, were not necessarily writing things about how they felt. They, you know, they weren't diary entries. They weren't saying about how they felt about their job that particular day or mm. other relationship with their wives so you can't necessarily learn about them personally in that sort of way but the more you've studied you've been able to tell basically who's written which tablet and to be able to recognize the same scribe over and over again. Well it it is noticeable that
2: in all the stuff that survives and don't forget that once it started it then runs all the way down to also the third millennium the second millennium and the first millennium so basically 3,000 years of use. It is noticeable that there's hardly anything which corresponds to what we would call personal writing so Mm -hmm. nobody kept a diary like we do nobody wrote a journal nobody wrote philosophical analyses of things or big questions about the universe they may have had these ideas but on the whole writing was used for specific purposes and I think boys were trained in school that you respected the craft you learned all there was to learn and well, respect was particularly orientated towards older inscriptions from the past which had to be preserved and recopied and I could imagine anybody who as a boy started writing a, once upon a time there was a giant called somebody on his tablet would have been in very big trouble in class and told that this is not what writing is for, you're not to do this kind of activity. So as a result we don't have a lot of personal information or a window on, on, on a private person's ideas. On the whole this is the case. However, it's important in order to get a handle on all this stuff, because we have religious texts, we have historical things, we have political things, magic and medicine and telling the future and all ranges of, of human literature. If one wants to kind of disinter from underneath it some idea of the chaps, so to speak, who did all this work, you have to look very carefully. And when you put it all together, you can get a fruit bowl, it seems to me, or bits of evidence, which add up to an important message, which is that the Babylonians and the Sumerians before them were, in every important way, and probably in every way, exactly the same as we are now, that they weren't a more primitive or less developed kind of nation. And they might have had funny religious ideas, they might have had funny customs, they might have had funny clothes, as it were, from our point of view. They might have looked jolly foreign and jolly bizarre, but everybody in a swimming pool looks a bit more the same. And I think that the Homo sapiens, as we take it for granted that we all are must encompass people of this kind of period as well and one of the reasons is that you can see that people are frightened of the same things as we are they're frightened of war and disease and illness they're frightened of not having children especially not having sons they're worried about money and business they do all the stuff they're supposed to do for religious purposes but sometimes you get the feeling they do it because it's a pain in the neck not because they really believe in it and All those sorts of things, and people write lots of sardonic letters about money and um, how they sent the goods as agreed and no gold has arrived and uh, what the hell is going on, and and, then someone writes back and says, well, it's a bit funny you're writing now because two days before your tablet came I'd already sent this money off and, you know, all this kind of correspondence. And lots of other things like that. And sometimes there's a a short love letter or a a chap says, you know... um, writes into an official that uh, he's in charge of the, of the of the dam of the against the waters where he's working and um, it's leaking in every rich, rich direction. He was up the whole weekend trying to stave off the water on his own and he's exhausted and fed up and why don't they send somebody? I mean, all those sorts of letters, if you look for them, there's a lot. And eventually, if you read enough of them, you penetrate this mad writing system and you get the words out and you get the grammar out and you translate the meaning and you get suddenly an English translation of what this letter says. There's another level of satisfaction which comes when you, having produced this result, you then try to think about what it really means and what, reading between the lines what the previous letter must have said, what's actually going on here, whether this is the same bloke that occurs in another letter who's got the same name, could it be the same person and, and all that. It's an interesting matter because we have so much material and so much of it is non-revealing that people on the whole have attempted to give up any kind of attempt to to reconstitute babylonians into a, a bunch of chaps in the queue outside the cinema you know what they would look like you would be a fat one and a thin one and a sly one and a cruel one and an adulterous one and a you know a chilly monstrous one and god knows what else I and mean, all the all the things i mean there must have been so to speak um, bigamits and child molesters and the thieves and hypocrites and uh, people who are cruel to people under their control and you know, all those sorts of things that you read in the daily papers all those things must have existed and we don't always have proof of every single facet but the overwhelming Um, impression to me, having spent such a lot of time reading all these things is that that's the truth of it, that the people the other side of this literature are people that we recognise
1: Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm with Irving Finkel and we're talking about his book The Ark Before Noah, decoding the story of the flood. And it's often I guess something that we could overlook Irving but the fact that we have these things to study is serendipity really because they chose to mark clay rather than paper. Mm. Absolutely. Let's talk about where these things were were first found. I want to get us on to the early archaeology and the, the first days when people were were uncovering these things
2: right well it's it's really from the beginning of the 19th century from the Mm -hmm. 1830s onwards archaeologists from here and france at the beginning went to ancient mesopotamia the, the landscape of ancient mesopotamia which is now what we call iraq it wasn't then in the 19th century, in order to look for stuff to prove that the Bible, which was supposed to have happened in that part of the world, was true, that was their big idea, and they went and, and they dug with unerring accuracy in the largest mounds where they found, indeed, palaces and temples and major archaeological finds, including, in some cases, lots of clay tablets with writing on. And the story of how these things were translated understood for the first time is a heroic matter and usually the tribute is given to a man called henry rawlinson sir henry rawlinson and he did something very important because babylonian written in cuneiform never mind Sumerian, which is even worse babylonian would never have been deciphered at all if we didn't have a bilingual text Mm -hmm. and you know how important that was with the Egyptian hieroglyphs mm-hmm. because they had the Rosetta Stone where the text was not only in Egyptian but also in Greek and of course they roared through the Greek with no difficulty mm-hmm. so they knew what the Egyptian was about and that was the, the beginning of how they levered their way into hieroglyphs Well, something somewhat comparable happened with cuneiform writing because in Iran there was a high mountain pass where the king Darius had written a long inscription in old Persian writing and also in Babylonian. There was another column as well. Now, Old Persian looks like cuneiform, but actually is completely different from the real cuneiform. It's very simple, because the scribes of Darius took the idea of cuneiform writing and they made up 26 signs to spell their language. So it's really an alphabet in cuneiform dress, so to speak. So when this first came to light. scholars who could read old persian fluently knew all about the persian languages once they realized that this was the old persian language they could easily decipher that and mm-hmm. they did it and once they cracked the old persian then they had a kind of crib to penetrate the babylonian and the way they did it was this that in the persian text it said i am Darius, king of kings son of my dad king of kings you know all that kind of thing so there were names and repeated bits and the name of Darius, the famous Achaemenid ruler, in Persian is something like Dariush. So when they had this... Persian translated, they looked in the Babylonian and they saw that there were some signs that repeated. And since it said king of kings and king of kings and king of kings so they thought maybe this was something like that. Mm-hmm. So then they started mucking around with the signs in front and they thought, well, if its name is Darius, which maybe the first sign is D or Da and they tried it. And they got a few syllables and then they tried it and they found a Semitic word for river in the Babylonian. Using this system of one syllable and another syllable they found this word for river which was related to the Aramaic word for river. And so they knew, bang like that, that this Babylonian language was a Semitic tongue. Mm -hmm. And that was marvellous because they had Arabic dictionaries and Hebrew dictionaries and they all knew those languages. So they plunged in with alacrity. And because of this polyvalence business, where one sign can be more than one thing... Mm They got into a big mess, and Rawlinson especially got into a big mess, and the mess was removed by a man called Hinks, mm-hmm. Edward Hinks, who was a Protestant minister in Northern Ireland who had many daughters and ran a church. And uh, he'd studied in Trinity College, Dublin, and he was undoubtedly a genius because he wrote serious contributions to many disciplines, light physics and all sorts of music and all, all sorts of stuff like that, but he was primarily interested in philology. Now, in his spare time, he decided that he would translate hieroglyphs because no-one had done mm-hmm. it and um, I think he wanted to be a head of Champollion, if possible. So he got all the books and he started work. On Egyptian hieroglyphs, and then at this time, the first cuneiform stuff was becoming known. And Hinks, it's recorded that Hinks decided he'd have a look at this cuneiform stuff in case it was helpful in the decipherment of Egyptian. So he didn't think, "I'm going to decipher cuneiform, you know, I'm going to be famous. This is my work." He just thought he'd do a bit of that on the side to see if it mm-hmm. helped. And in the process, he became the first person to understand properly how the writing system worked. Mm -hmm. And his early work was of fantastically high standard. And once this was published and people grasped the complexities and they saw how it really functioned, then the discipline began to take off. So by 1850 or 1860, a scribe could write a tablet, could be buried in the ground and dug up all that time later, and a modern scholar could read it, more or less. So when we get into the question of the flood and um, the sources to do with that, Mm -hmm. in the British Museum... Because these excavations were run by British archaeologists, they began to bring inscriptions back, and before long there was a growing collection of clay tablets in the British Museum. And it's among those that material to do with the flood story were discovered principally by this George Smith. Mm -hmm. Now, George Smith was a totally different animal to Hinks or Rawlinson. He was, I think, a rather awkward, stubborn sort of fellow. He was fascinated by the Bible and the British Museum's collections. He spent a lot of time looking through the glass in the museum and getting in people's way. And eventually, because of his determination, he was taken on as a sort of boy helper. And this Smith, who was actually a trained engraver, taught himself to read this recently developed cuneiform. He read all the literature, he mastered everything, and he made a lot of progress. And he was a good example of somebody who has a huge amount of natural talent and mm-hmm. did a huge amount of work. So I don't know whether the imagination and perspiration ratio is 99 yeah. to 1, but whatever the right mixture is... Smith had it, and he became himself something of a genius at deciphering these clay tablets at a time when most people around him were fumbling around.
1: Mm. Before we get to his big discovery, you just mentioned he was an engraver. He was taken on as a sort of helper. His job... Essentially, was to clean the tablets, to prepare well, them for somebody else to look at. So I wanted to talk about what... We were talking about the, the archaeology and the people being over there in Mesopotamia, in Iraq, looking for these things. What do they look like when they come out of the ground?
2: Well, if you're sufficiently lucky to harvest a clay tablet out of the ground like a potato, there's something very important you have to remember. Because in antiquity, most tablets, when they were written, were dried in the sun because the sun in Iraq is rather good at that Mm -hmm. kind of thing, so that the clay then became perfectly safe to touch. Mm -hmm. It's only seldom that tablets were actually baked in a kiln, like pottery, up to a very high temperature. They did do that, but only for special cases. So normally speaking, if you wrote a marriage contract, or a school exercise, or a letter, or something of this kind, it would be dry one side and the other in the sun, until it was safe to handle. Now... This state of unfired but sun-dried clay applies to probably ninety nine per cent of the surviving materials and when they were buried in the ground either intentionally or by accident or in a destruction layer or whatever it was, they were under the ground and they had to wait for all that time before they were to be excavated. When they came to light in the ground, a tablet would be a dark colour and it will be wet because it always happens that a tablet in the ground attracts the water in the surrounding area. So, in other words, ironically, after all this incubation in the ground, you will have a tablet which is... You can't touch it because you'll sort of smear everything. It's like a tablet that's just being written so what happens and i've done this myself it's a very exciting thing if you find such an object is you put it on a sheet of paper somewhere by the dig house uh, not in the high sun, because that's probably too hot and it might crack. So it dries carefully in the warm air, and after two days it's again like something you will be in the museum, you can handle it with impunity. So the problem is, if you're on a dig and you find some tablets, your impulse is to grab them and read them to find out <laughs> what the name of the place or some crucial thing like that. And in fact it's very frightening on a dig because the director and everybody else gathers around like somebody, like, like when someone gets knocked off a bicycle in the street, everybody <laughs> comes around and presses over and stifles the poor guy, who just wants to stand up and breathe. So it is with this Decipherment, what does it say? What does it say? You know, you know, and all that is rather alarming. So, you have to dry them first, which is um complex. So, that's the situation. And sun dried tablets on the whole will last forever in the museum. Here, we monitor our collection because what actually happens is that the, the riverine clay from the terrain of Iraq not infrequently has quite a high salt content, and sometimes the salt comes to the surface of the tablet over decades and decades or the change of environment and in fact becomes hazardous for the writing on the outer surface and so um, a system is developed here for firing them in in a modern kiln up to a controlled temperature and then they're soaked to remove all the salts and then the tablet is to all intents and purposes terracotta so very solid and will last forever certainly longer than anything in the miserable british library because when the British Library was here, they used to have these heart-rending posters outside with a medieval book with the spine falling to bits saying, Adopt a book, you know, <laughs> uh, and we used to kind of just sneer at it because what a pathetic thing we thought that they had to do all that for their books and our tablets just last forever. And it's a good thing they do.
3: I'm Natalie Haynes and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show
2: about ideas and culture.
1: George Smith then, let's talk about... What happened, what he discovered and and the consequences?
2: Well, early on, I think, when he was taken on the staff, people realised he had a lot of ability and he must have made really rapid progress because when he was put on sorting things out, what he did was to sort them out by subject matter. So he knew what letters were, he knew what census lists and um, lists of official names and all. He could tell them apart very readily and he had a pile which got bigger and bigger of things which he called literary. So if it was a story about the gods, or there was some kind of giveaway sign that this was a, a bit of a story of one kind or another. Or you could broadly call literature. He kept them all together, and when he did that, after a while, he noticed that things joined mm. because of the broken fragment, which had either been destroyed in antiquity or in the journey or whatever it was to London, often there are bits that go together. And once you'd realised that the resources can be used to reconstruct complete tablets, then everything changes because it's not just the fortuitous lump that you have in front of you, but the knowledge that if you read this and it says, and the god so-and-so picked up his axe and and then the rest of the sentence is missing, you want to know whose head it was was going to be split open. And among the collection, there was always more... To hunt for, so he got very exercised about it. And the culmination of this activity, which I fully understand how exciting that must have been, was the discovery one day that he was reading a big piece of an Assyrian tablet from the Royal Library in Nineveh, written in the seventh century. He's sitting there reading it, deciphering, with a gate-dealer facility, the script, because the script in the Nineveh tablets is very beautiful and very clear, so it's not so difficult to read it. So he reads this tablet, and he discovers, to his astonishment, that what he's reading is a description of the plan to destroy the world, and a man being selected to build an ark, and the flood coming, and the waters illuminating everything, and the, the ark landing on a mountain after releasing birds. The thing that he knew from Genesis by heart now this was in 1872 and in eighteen seventy two everybody in this country knew their Bible inside mm-hmm. out. I don't think they do now. Most people have heard of the story of Noah's mm-hmm. Ark. Not everybody knows that it's even in the Bible, mm-hmm. but in eighteen seventy-two everybody really knew it. So you had this situation with a clever person like this Smith sitting there, unsuspecting, reading this ancient thing. What did they have to say? What do they have to say? And suddenly He hears in his mind's ear, so to speak, the voice describing what is basically the story in Genesis. Now, he is recorded in our departmental files as having dropped the tablet on the desk, which we're not supposed to do with a form tablet. And then leaping out of his chair and, and, and holding his head and running around the room making funny noises and then eventually tearing open his waistcoat and trying to get his clothes off. He couldn't breathe. He couldn't, you know, he was, he was in a kind of mad state of agitation. And probably we can understand why this was. <laughs> because imagine how that was, a- unappetizing, a bit of barbaric material that looked for all the world like, I don't know, what's... A, sort of thing you might put in a parrot cage for the parrot to nibble at, something like that, has on it the text that we would call Holy Writ. So the impact on him was gigantic. And a lot of big questions came up, a lot of big questions, for lots of different people. And not all of those questions have been answered today.
1: You've mentioned, you know, this was a time when everybody knew their Bible stories, mm. but this is also just very recently a post Origin of Species world as well. So things are things are in flux anyway in, in that flux. sort of world. And,
2: and clergymen who had been trained um, seventy years before mm-hmm. in Cambridge and never had thought to ask any questions about anything and knew their Greek and Latin and they just trotted things out, suddenly found themselves having to deal with rather difficult questions. Now, Smith was advised by the keeper that this discovery was not just something to keep within the walls of the British Museum and needed to be publicised, and he gave a big lecture for the Society of Biblical Archaeology where all sorts of important people were invited, including the Archbishop of Canterbury, Prime Minister, and he announced this discovery of the Chaldean account of Genesis. And there was a huge furore. And one of the cute things that happened was that the Daily Telegraph, hearing from Smith that there was stuff left in Iraq to be looked at, stumped up the fare, and they sent him back to Iraq to see if he could find a bit more, which, Mm -hmm. in fact, he did rather quickly. So that was a neat thing. So Smith did two great things from the point of view of fame. He made this magnificent discovery and then he died young mm-hmm. and I don't know what his agent thought about it but that's the best way forward because <laughs> the tragedy of the widow with all the young children was a heartfelt thing and the sales of his books I think did rather well
1: there's subsequently been many other Parts of the mm. same story found in tablets mm. and, and from those first discoveries we get what we now call the Epic of Gilgamesh that huge saga. We're going to leap forward quite a way in time to the latest discoveries around this area but before we do that, Irving we need to talk about how you got interested in this field and, and how you ended up here in this office. At well this I think it's, it's
2: the only thing I can do really is to issue a health warning just in case there are young people at Houston in Britain who thought that career in the serial or museums was a good idea I mean Mm -hmm. you have to warn them how dangerous it could be but I was one of those kids who always loved the British Museum and I spent a lot of my childhood here and decided when I was really quite youthful that I wanted to work here properly as a real curator and I was astonishingly fortunate that it happened because it's not given to many people that you have an articulated idea beyond being a train driver or something that, that, that you really want to do and then it to happen, especially if there are not many jobs in the British Museum, I was a very happy and fortunate person when that happened and I've been to ever since, so because this is a marvellous place to be, this British Museum, so there was that, and having made up my mind to do that, I thought I would do some kind of ancient stuff at university and in point pointed in fact, by accident, I ended up deciding I wanted to learn to read Egyptian hieroglyphs because there's a marvellous collection here of all those mummies and bits and pieces from tombs and wall paintings and objects, and it's very rich and very fascinating, and the writing is so seductively beautiful, I thought, I got learn this stuff, you know, so I went off to university in order to do Egyptology, and the teacher who started us off only gave a single lecture, and then he dropped dead, and... That was a bit of a bizarre thing. And the professor the head of the department called me into his room. He said, you know, a bit grim about this, but um, it's going to take me a bit of time to get another Egyptologist. You know, you can't just get them out of the newspaper. I have to try and find another one. But um, while you're at a loose end, there's a chap in this department who teaches cuneiform writing and culture, Babylonian and Sumerian. I think you go and do a bit of that. And then when we get an Egyptologist, you can go back to being an Egyptologist. So I knock on the door, you know... And uh, this professor, whose name was Lambert, was not at all interested in the idea of having students. Mm -hmm. This was a time in the 60s, in fact it was 1969 when I went up to university, when most academic university people not only had no students, but they were delighted about it, because it meant they had plenty of time to do research. Mm -hmm. And um, some of them had no students for a decade and wrote lots of books. Some, of course, didn't do anything, but some of them wrote lots of books. And they were always very put out when there was a knock on the door, when somebody wanted to become an undergrad graduate and butt into their timetable and Lambert was one of these and I had to persuade him a bit and he grudgingly said all right well um, I'm going to give you this list of signs you um, learn these by Monday and then we'll see. Cycles. I spent the whole weekend learning these confoundedly unintelligible signs, at least I thought they were going to be confoundedly difficult, but actually I suddenly I found out, no, they just went into my head like they just fitted in, so on Monday morning I was very confident about it, and so we started reading a bit of stuff, you know, he put this text in front of me and we started these signs and it was this law code that began, if, you know, this is what we think about really, and off we went, and I ten minutes into this lesson I knew this was going to be my, my life's work so it was a very bizarre kind of Thing And then, to my great delight, having made this fateful decision and then learned for years and years and the most arduous and painful circumstances, how to read all this stuff and become an ethereologist. There was a vacancy in the British Museum, and I got the job, so I've been a very lucky person.
0: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times.
1: Latims, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Irving Finkel. We're talking about his book The Ark Before Noah, decoding the story of the flood. And Irving, that book has on its back cover a rather splendid photograph of yourself <laughs> holding a thing, a tablet, um, it's probably about the size of somebody's mobile phone. Exactly. Um, tell us what that is and how it came to be in your hand.
2: Well, that, I'm afraid to say, is the most interesting tablet I've ever seen, even though we've got such wonderful ones in our own collection, mm-hmm. because somebody brought it in one day, a chap called Douglas Simmons. He brought in a few antiquities, not only this tablet, which they belonged to him, and his dad had picked them up in the 40s or so. He was a curio kind of person, and when Douglas did rather well in some school exams, mm-hmm. his dad went up in the loft and said, ''Hey, this stuff's for you, this is a special present.'' So there was a, a few tablets, and he brought all this stuff in, and he poured it on the table in front of me because I was on duty.'' Mm-hmm. <laughs> And he wanted to know what they were. You know, it wasn't only tablets. There were a couple of lamps and a few bits of coins. No, the usual sort of small lamps and seals, small antiquities. Anyway, so I picked up this first tablet thinking it was going to be a letter because it looked like a letter. And the first line said, wall, wall, read, wall, read, wall. And it was clear. And I have to say that it took about a millisecond for me to identify it. And any Assyriologist in the world would also have identified it because this is the first line of probably the most famous speech of all because it's the moment when the god Enki, who knows there's going to be a flood, takes it upon himself secretly to warn the Babylonian equivalent of Noah, who we know to be called Atrahasis that he's got to build a boat, and he's got to build it fast, and get everything that they need on board because the waters are coming. So these words, wall, wall, reed wall, reed wall, are uh, what happens because this Enki, he decides he can't tell Atrahasis because he'll be breaking his oath Mm -hmm. in silence and he could be in big trouble with the other gods. So he goes for a stroll by the reeds round in the wall round the hut, and he whispers it, and the wind carries the sound through the reeds, and Atrahasis hears this and he knows what's going to happen. So I have in front of me a new piece of the flood story. Now all the serialogists in the world are dying to get mm-hmm. their teeth into flood stories, so I sort of at this thing start looking at it and douglas says okay and what's this and he gives me another thing and what's this and and then eventually when i said a few lines about everything it all went back in the bag and he said well thanks very much and off he went now this was a bleak moment for me because not only was this the question of a a flood story but no one had read it before obviously i mean it's a jolly interesting thing to get your hands on but i couldn't stop him and i'd given him what he wanted so he went off he was a slightly strange chap he was not chatty at all, a bit morose with a very large head and very clever looking and um, rather intimidating so I couldn't say, that just a moment I want to read this tablet um, he was off and I didn't see it for really quite a long time it was um, about 15 years before it came back into my life so I kind of mused about it once in a while but you know, I suppose I thought sooner or later he'll come back with it and uh, there's plenty of other wonderful things here. But in fact, to cut a long story short, I met him in the museum again, and I asked him he brought it in, and I got my hands on it. So then he left it with me. Mm-hmm. He was much more friendly the second time, and he said you can read it and do you know if you want to write about it, whatever, 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 It'd be lovely. So I got to work on it, and the tablet has sixty lines. In fact. I don't if you've seen the thing, have you? No, well, well like only this, in the photograph. This is not the real thing. This is a replica of which we have a craftsman in the museum who's able to make the most wonderful replicas out of resin, mm-hmm. so... This is a hard thing, as you can see. It looks like the original tablet, almost exactly, but it's a resin copy.
1: It literally is the size of a mobile phone. It fits
2: in the palm just like a mobile phone. If you put it up to your ear, the next thing you'll be saying, hello, hello, (laughs) hello, but nothing would happen, I promise you. But you can see how the writing is rather intensely all over it. It goes all the way down the front here. It's Mm -hmm. along the bottom edge, There's writing, and all the way down the back and down that edge Mm -hmm. as well. So the scribe squeezed in as much as he possibly could. Now, another interesting thing about it, it starts off, all right? A bit of damage here, a couple mm-hmm. of a crack, this, this, this. But the front on the whole, is not so bad. But when you turn it over, which you have to do yeah. this way, uh-huh. then you see the back, or what the seriologists call the reverse, as opposed to the obverse. Mm-hmm. The reverse is horrible. It's
1: got a big hole in it. It's
2: got lots of big holes in it. It looks like somebody had at it with a hammer mm-hmm. in a bad mood to me. I mean, it's really not all that brilliant. But there's bits of all the lines.
1: It's here. only now that I'm holding this in my hand that you can actually comprehend how... It looks just like very, very slight marks. How on earth do you go about... This is not... There's clearly markings on it, but it's in no way clear. Yeah. So not only is it obviously difficult to decipher the language, but you've got to deal with the fact that this thing is incomplete and it's no. badly marked and it's... It's happen- not
2: appetising. It looks like a whole colony of ants <laughs> <which> <laughs> run over by a steamroller. That's <laughs> the first thing. And then somebody trod on it. So apart <laughs> from that, it's fine. But the thing is, when you get your eye in, it's not so terrible and if you've done a quick 10 years of training you know these things become part of your daily work so i had a go at it and when i realized what it was i worked on it like Billio, because every single sign and every single wedge was important because it was full of unexpected things mm-hmm. and although we'd known quite a lot about the flood story after george's discovery in 1872 and the other bits and pieces that have come to light ever since this was something with a whole Tranche of new material, and it told us some really quite peculiar things. The first thing is that the boat that this atrachasis or Noah type chap, mm-hmm. had to build was round. And you know, this is—it is, it is a, it's a strange thing when you read the signs. You read the word, you translate it into mission your mind is perfectly good. Grammar—you can see that it means this word. Think, well, on earth is a round boat? You know, what, what am I doing with this? And of course, there are round boats. They are called coracles, and they are traditional river boats which have been around since God knows when in antiquity and in the world today. (laughs) And the people who live by rivers in Wales and Tibet and India, they still build coracles, which are basically a kind of basket coated with... A waterproofing material like bitumen or something like that, sometimes with skin instead of using reeds or ropes or things like that. So, when you start to think about it, in a way, this is rather sensible because mm-hmm. in ancient Mesopotamia, they li- all lived by the sides of these big rivers, the Euphrates and the Tigris. Most of the life went on in a riverine way, and there were lots of these boats probably a bit like taxis at a railway station on both sides of the river if you wanted to cross this would be the sort of craft you get in you take your three sheep and your mother-in-law and you gingerly get into this coracle and then the coracle chap would know how to get it across the river using the currents and going a bit north before you get dragged south and so forth that was their job so for safely looking after people on the water and animals the coracle was a functional thing. but This coracle was something different because Mm -hmm. the god, in order to make sure the job is done properly, he gives this Atrahasis specific measurements and sizes according to which it had to be built. So we have a coracle which is not six foot across like you or I would use, but it's 3,600 square metres, the base. So you have a round basket with a floor plan, 3,600 square metres. It's about half the size of a football pitch. That's quite a big coracle. (laughs) And then uh, he didn't leave it up to this poor fellow to work out how much material, because the way they built it was this. They had a, a rope made out of the pith from palm trees. So you gather this pith and you twist it and eventually you get a kind of rope which is very strong and what they did according to this ancient tablet is that that you laid out a big circle of the right size on the ground of the first load of rope and when you got back to the middle, the beginning rather you put the next thing on top of the one before Mm. and as you did it you sewed it north to south. So you built up and then the third row so eventually you had a kind of floppy basket and then you had to cut ribs out of special wood, they were fitted on the inside, it was all stitched together so then you had a floppy basket becoming a firm basket, and then it was covered in this pitch, head to foot, many, many times. So you had a light vessel, if it was a normal one, that you could carry on your shoulder. It would never sink, it would just float, and it would be perfect. So the same would apply to a really, really big one, which had to have Mr Noah, or Atrahasis, Mrs Atrahasis, their sons and daughters-in-law, and two of all the animals.
1: And the, the ancient story also contains the commandment to have two of each animal.
2: The, well, the Bible one has it explicitly, mm-hmm. and everybody knows about the animals in two by two. This is something which is in everybody's mind. Mm-hmm. It's a nursery school thing that you never forget. What was novel about this tablet is the same phrase actually occurs in the cuneiform. The word two by two is actually written on the tablet. That's also a very exciting matter. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the funny thing about this ark. What we've got here is specks, and the specks are giant size, but the thing is the sizes and the measurements are all, relatively speaking, in proportion to one another. Mm -hmm. So this is not the sort of measurements that a storyteller would say, you know, he's as big as saucers or Mm -hmm. 1,000-league boots or (laughs) twice as high as the Great Wall of China. They were measurements which were very big, but the quantities of rope, the quantities of bitumen and the size of the vessel all make sense as if a real coracle maker had handed over the structural idea and some mathematician of a great deal of facility had developed it so that it was a really big one which if you wanted to, you could build. Mm -hmm. This is rather extraordinary. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an idea of what we're talking about. If you imagine this round boat half the size of a football pitch, the amount of rope to build up the walls, the distance in length is given by this tablet in Babylonian measures. And if you convert them into something more familiar... English kind of measures, the distance covered by this rope, if you laid it out in one line, would go from London to Edinburgh. Mm -hmm. That's quite a lot of rope, is it not? But the thing is, if you calculate given the size of the plan and the height of the walls and the thickness of the rope it's about mm-hmm. right. It's within 1% actually of what a mathematician tells me would actually be the number. So this is not a coincidence in <laughs> that. It's some brain and quite a good mathematical brain working this stuff out and plonking it in the story. Mm-hmm. And why would that be? Why would that be? You imagine this in a world where you've got a storyteller who go from village to village and they, they turn up at Dusk and there's a fire and everybody's sitting around drinking pottage, whatever pottage is, and you, you tell a story for a seat. And there must be many people like that. And I can imagine that such a storyteller is talking about the gods furious with man, and they're going to stamp on them, and they'll all be finished, and they'll send the flood, and they'll all be silence in the world, and then this god nips down and tells a you know, kind of dramatic thing and everyone thinks everything's going to be destroyed and a good storyteller would have people, as it were, on the edge of their seat. And it seemed to me, if you're telling a story about a boat, right, and it's a really big boat for this purpose, it's no good saying a big boat, because all the guys listening made these boats. Mm-hmm. Or they were porters, or they were fishermen, or they, they went on luggers up and down the water. or they, You know, this was there, to a large extent, for the villages. Mesopotamia, their lifeblood in every way. So I could imagine some sailor hearing this story and everybody going ooh and ah oh, and putting his hand up saying, Just a minute, you know, <laughs> just a minute, what did this boat look like? You know, if it's, you know, <laughs> what does it look like, man? <laughs> so maybe under pressure <laughs> like that, or maybe as a matter of evolution <laughs> in the story, the storyteller thinks, What could it be but, but a coracle? <laughs> because a coracle didn't have to go anywhere in the flood, it just had to bob around on the water. His big job was not to sink. And Coracles
1: don't think. I'm John Lloyd, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Well, you've mentioned that a coracle is the obvious thing that we will think of when we think of this boat, and that there was coracles, but, of course, the other obvious round boat that a person would think of, if you ask them to imagine one, is a lifeboat.
2: Yes, well, in fact, this is, in my view, the archetype lifeboat, <laughs> isn't it? Because it's got all life inside it. But I think that the problem that besets us is we've got this... 69 bit of literature, which is part of a much bigger story. As you know, the flood itself is part of a much bigger Mm -hmm. story, sometimes in the Gilgamesh version, and sometimes in another composition but it's a big central Mesopotamian thing and we've got a lump of it and what are these specifications doing there I think the only explanation can be that it was for an audience where hard facts were mm-hmm. what they needed they weren't happy to be told it was the biggest coracle in the world, they wanted an. app. and if he said well it was the size of a whole field which is literally what this is, three thousand six hundred meters then someone's going to say well how much rope are you going to need to do that, how much picture, <laughs> you, you know come on man, <laughs> so I Think that's what
4: happened,
2: <laughs> and eventually, one of these storytellers got fed up with this. So, he probably knew someone that he used to be at school with. He said, Listen, look into this. So, one day I, I see it, one of these teachers in the school, there half a dozen bright kids who've learned to read cuneiform, they're going to be scribes. He says, You know, today we've got a new problem. So, mm-hmm. uh, everybody knows that uh, Atrahasis's art was a coracle or a guppu, as it's called in Babylonian. Well, let's say it was this big across, and let's say the rope was this thick, one finger thick. How much rate would you need to make one? So they all get down and they work out the answer and teacher checks the answer, and eventually they have this series of facts, specs, which find themselves embedded Mm -hmm. in this story about 1750 BC, something like that, as part of what we would call uh, a mythological story, where to our ears it's a bit odd, and it must reflect the needs of the audience for which it was designed. Now, about... A thousand years after this tablet was written, in the library of Nineveh, where King Ashurbanipal was king, there was a huge library collected, and in that library was the very tablet that George Smith, in 1872 AD, all that time afterwards, was the first to read. and that tablet has this thing where the flood hero who there is not called Atrahasis but has a different name Utnapishtim. Utnapishtim in that version in the 7th century was the man who built the ark and he's sitting next to Gilgamesh by a river and he's telling him about what happened. So we have Utnapishtim's version a thousand years after this new tablet of the same story and when he came to building the ark he just said well they built it and they covered it in bitumen. He doesn't give you any of these measurements Mm -hmm. at all. The whole lot's been purged out. And I have the idea that in this urban and much more sophisticated world, mm-hmm. people, know, you know, merchants and their wives, they're sitting in the court listening for the hundredth time to mm-hmm. the story of the flood. They're probably fed up with it, you know, and this new guy with a and the, like, mm-hmm. I don't know what it is, but they don't want to hear about mm-hmm. the specs. They don't want to know how much. They don't give a monkeys. Yeah. So, in other words, they soon learned that when recounting this story and writing it up, forget all that technical stuff. Mm-hmm. So that seems to me to make a lot of sense. So let's look at it again from another point of view. All it says here is that the wild animals went on two by two. So what about the domestic animals? Well, obviously, they took it for granted that the domestic animals would go, so they didn't say anything. If you were a farmer, you might also feel a bit dissatisfied. You know, (laughs) if you say all the animals, whoa, what do we know? The lizards go, you know, the snakes go. I mean, can we just clarify that? You know, so I imagine, although, of course... We don't have such a thing. There might well have been a recension of this where the guy wasn't really so interested in the boat, mm-hmm. but he wanted to know about the livestock. Do we take all the species of sheep, or does one sheep and another sheep? You know, what it would be. There must have been some leeway mm-hmm. for a storyteller, as I see it, to give the audience what they need, like a good comedian. Mm-hmm. If you're telling a story and you, the audience is shifting on their seats, you know, you change tack, you move to a different topic. So it would be, I think, with an ancient storyteller, that they could read their audience and probably they
1: had a good yes. list of animals up their sleeve just in case <laughs> someone said,
2: well, I want to know who they all were
1: and you'd have to do it, wouldn't you? Let's talk perhaps briefly about the roots of this story. We're talking about a place, there's the you know, the Euphrates here, the Tigris there. This is an area where civilization grew up and it grew up there. It's an area called the Fertile Crescent and it's mm-hmm. a Fertile Crescent because that entire area is basically a huge floodplain between these two rivers. Exactly.
2: No, that's absolutely right. This is a crucial matter because we know the story first from the Bible... Well, the Bible and the world of the Bible and the, the Judean experience and so forth is not a riverine water world at all. Whereas the Babylonian version, which we know is older, is vested as you, exactly as you say in a in a landscape created by two massive rivers, where the floodplain could be comfortably flooded, disastrously flooded, or whatever at any time at points during the year. It was a reality. Flooding and destruction by water was one of the aspects of their lives, and many people, I think have come to this conclusion. Firstly, the story in the book of Genesis is difficult to say when that, how old that can be, but however early you date the Bible, if we've got the flood story in cuneiform from about 1700 or 1800 BC, that is about a 1,000 years older than the Bible is likely to be under any <coughs> interpretation. So you've got from the text, your Hebrew Bible, your bowl full of Babylonian bits and pieces to do with the flood story, you've got the flood story in cuneiform about a millennium older. So it's natural to imagine that it comes out of the landscape where the tablets come from, from the culture where these people lived and and, and all that. And it seems to me in every way... Credible that the flood story has its origin in the land of the two rivers mm-hmm. and it later passed into the text of the Bible. Now, one of the things that's happened to me since I wrote this book, and there have been lots of people who have asked lots of questions, there are two really big questions that everybody asked me, and I didn't actually discuss either of them in the book because I felt it was a different kind of matter. Mm-hmm. So I skirted over it, I didn't avoid it, I decided not to write about it. And these are the two questions Was there a flood and was there an ark? And since finishing the book and it being published, So many people have asked me these questions, I've really felt that they need to be addressed, and I'm certainly going to put a chapter about it when the paperback comes out later in the year. So my way forward here is this. Whether there was a flood and whether there was an ark are to be split in half. Mm -hmm. And I think the answer to whether there was a flood in the sense of, was ancient Mesopotamia ever subjected to a massive destructive flood like Mm a tsunami? I would say certainly yes. Mm I think that the issue of the flood, the topic, the literary topic, is so deeply embedded in Babylonian psychology. All things are before the flood and after the flood. There's a kind of framework that I think it must reflect that at some really remote period, and I'm not talking about 3000 BC or near the time of writing, but maybe several thousand years before that, who knows, 5000 BC, something really a long time before, I think there must have been a flood, more like a tsunami, where the town Towns and villages of the Great Plain, Mesopotamian Heartland were all washed down to the Persian Gulf, everything was destroyed and very few people survived. And I think if you have such a trauma in your life Uh, your cultural life and in your cultural memory, a memory of this wound will last for a long time in a world before writing, because people tell their children Mm. and they tell their children that once upon a time the gods are very angry and everything is destroyed. So it's kind of there. So I would say it wasn't a flood that affected China and Australia. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a global flood. And I'm not trying to find even scientific stuff to back it up, but I think the culture of Mesopotamia had this big injury in its past... That people never forgot mm-hmm. and therefore if they didn't forget it i think there was a perpetual and lingering fear that the same massive destruction could happen again so as i see it the story of the mechanism whereby the noah character or the atrahasis or the utnapishtim figure is selected by someone in heaven to build a boat to rescue the kernel of life so that after the destruction the world can begin again is mythology if you want to call Mm -hmm. it that supplying a comfort a relief for the fear so I don't think there's any question about whether the Ark existed I think looking for the Ark or wondering about whether anybody ever really built the one in our story is neither here nor there the Ark is the human conception whereby despite the disruption, life survived in Mm -hmm. this little miraculous walnut so it seems to me that you've got a deep-seated psychological fear and a fertile, satisfactory answer, which means that although man is helpless on the globe and the gods can do anything and nature can do anything, that it will never happen that everything will be completely destroyed. Mm -hmm. In the Bible, this is explicit in the rainbow. Because after the flood's finished and the ark's landed and everything, there's a rainbow in the book of Genesis, which is God's way of showing that whatever happened, he'll never do that again. So in the Bible, it's kind of explicit. And I think the whole flood story has the same function in Babylonian psychology, that whatever happens, one of the gods will find a way to tell one bloke to do one thing and, you know, the space capsule will be in place. Mm -hmm. So this, I think, is a very human and sympathetic idea so that you have an age-old flood long before anybody can remember what really happened and this mythological thing brought together to give a kind of reassurance about the future. That's how I see it. So as a result of it, it's not to me a sensible question about whether we can find the Ark, whether there's a bit left of it here or there or whether anybody built this Ark here now this tablet, this very tablet which we're talking about, if you wanted to build it mm-hmm. you could, mm-hmm. if you were really batty, if you had the resources or you were a film company, you <laughs> couldn't do it there is a film company who's doing it they are building a replica of this Ark not full size it's between a half and two thirds of the original, so it's pretty damn it's still big. big they're building it in India for the end of the month of April, I'm going out to India to be in on the last scene. I've been in this whole documentary, which has been being made for the last year, to see whether it sinks mm-hmm. or floats. This is a very interesting matter. But in terms of the real arc, was there a real arc? Can we find Noah's arc? To my mind, this is a kind of non-inquiry. Now, there's one other thing. A lot of people have said to me, well, if you mess around with this, you tamper with the biblical narrative, you make people feel uneasy, like they did already with George Smith when, when all the clergymen got so frantic about what did it mean if Holy Writ was already known to these barbarians. Well, there is one very important thing here for people who mm-hmm. regard the Bible in a very strong and personally adherent sort of way that we know from this story about Atrahasis the flood story in Mesopotamia, that the reason that the gods decided to bonk human beings on the head and get rid of them was because they were noisy. And the words are very clear in this, uh, the whole, the big myth behind the extract mm-hmm. in our tablet. But that was the reason that the gods in heaven, as it were, especially the big fat gods, had had, a, as I see it, a big lunch. there, sitting back in their deck chairs and there's a lot of racket from the kids screaming down there and I don't know, armies marching or whatever it was. And they can't sleep and they think, you know what, we'll do, we'll, we'll get rid of this lot, we'll, uh, we'll come up with something else. And this Enki, the one who did the whisper job, is the one who gave the warning. So you have this interesting pivot issue about the existence of life on the planet being assessed in terms of noise abatement. That is a rather peculiar matter. Now what happens is when this story resurfaces in the book of Genesis and it resurfaces in Hebrew in a way which is really close to the Babylonian original, there is a crucial difference because in the Judean understanding. God in heaven is moved to obliterate mankind because they were sinful, because they were wicked. And he looks down and everyone is wicked and dreadful things are happening and there's no morality and he thinks, well, you know, perhaps this wasn't such a good role model, you know, maybe we'll start again and see what we can do better sort of thing. And then he sees this Noah fellow walking about with a straight back and an upright character and thinks... There's one man like that, I can't destroy one man like that. And he becomes the person who is given the job of rescuing the molecules of life for the future. So you've got a very interesting matter to my mind of a very long-running, important and understandable Mesopotamian story in circulation for a millennium or more in Mesopotamian heartland. You've got the Judeans, who were living peacefully also in Jerusalem until Nebuchadnezzar, the second king of Babylon in 597, decided they were a pain in the neck and went and destroyed the temple and took Jehoiakim and all the lot, marched them off to Babylon, and then uh, ten years later did it again, much more effectively, brought everybody else. You have the beginning of the Babylonian exile and the destruction of their landscape and their culture and their temple and everything else there. And you have these Judeans in Babylon, and I think it was then, when they were in a very parlous state and receptive in some way to the material around them, that they became aware of all sorts of Babylonian traditions, and there's more than one of them which ends up in the book of Genesis, and it's at that time that these stories, which had a certain currency in the Babylonian mind, were taken by the Judeans and recycled with a whole different spiritual value to have a key position at the beginning of their own book, which became what we call the Bible. So there's another good example. Everybody knows in the book of Exodus about Mm. Moses Mm -hmm. in the bull rushes. All the firstborns are supposed to be drowned in the river and they put this Moses in a basket and it goes down the river. And the pharaoh's daughter sees this thing floating and she rescues it and takes the baby back to the palace. Mm -hmm. And there you are. That's Moses' beginning. Well, this story existed a long time before in Babylonia about a king called Sargon. And there's a big difference in the Sargon version because his mother was a priestess. And this priestess was supposed to be chased. Mm. And I'm afraid to say this priestess got knocked up. And when she found herself pregnant, she took steps to deal with the baby so that when it was born, she put it in a little vessel, sealed with bitumen like a coracle, and she put it in the river and it was rushed away by the waters. And a fellow called Aki, who was a water-to-do-with-irrigation fellow, a a humble worker in the fields, saw this basket, rescued it, and brought the baby into his house and brought him up and he became the king of Mm -hmm. Mesopotamia. So what is this? You've got a kind of Romulus and Remus beginning for great men mm. you can't have elbert presley growing up in a small town you know with the they've all got to have a glorious beginning as part of world the mm. world thing with heroes so sargon had this rather sleazy beginning mm. ended up being adopted by the inanna the great goddess as uh, her protege and he became king of all mesopotamia and a very famous ruler so this is one thing so the judeans as i see it they're writing all this stuff the beginning of the Bible and the account of all their heritage and they've got Moses and Moses can't just suddenly be born in a village and be nobody like that you know he's got a bicycle and he goes to school he's got to have a bit of Mm zing so they think about this story of the baby in the river and they think you know that's a good idea so they rewrite it they recast it to apply and in their story Everything is reversed, so that the person who rescues this baby is none other than the Pharaoh's daughter. (laughs) So he gets taken to the palace, and you can imagine, as I see it, you know, he has the biggest train set in the kingdom. He's got rocking horse. He's got you know all the toys in the world. He goes to Eton. He goes to Oxford. He has a very good start Mm -hmm. in life, the best possible start in life. So I think the 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 Judeans had this. It was really funny that they put their kid right in the middle of the pharaoh's palace and the, the final straw is that none of the women in the Egyptian court are able to suckle this child so they have to get a woman from the from over there or something and pay her to suckle the baby and then they employ the baby's mother to suckle him and they <laughs> don't know it's the mother so this is a kind of she's an anti-Egyptian joke, I think people must have roared with laughter mm-hmm. when they heard that story that the Egyptians were so dumb that any of them could have any milk and then they they 're so stupid they don 't even realize you know something like that <laughs> so I think that story is given a whole zest of life mm-hmm. and it comes out printed soberly in the book of Exodus people read it in church or in a the synagogue they read this narrative and they, but actually the thing about it is it's like that is, it's the stupid Egyptians and we are the winners, it's <laughs> something like that <laughs> that's how I see it so this big issue that George Smith was so worried about and all the clergymen I think, doesn't have a sting in its tail for people, for religious sensibilities nowadays, that if you know the story of Noah and the Ark as a Jew or a Christian or as a Muslim, because it's also in the Quran, that finding that there was a literary motif before and that the literary motif was worked into a new life in a new philosophical and theological world, it seems to me a perfectly acceptable matter.
1: All right well we're, we're very quickly running out of time but just one more question if I may you mm-hmm. mentioned earlier on the idea of the you know the very specific specifications of the arc when it was the coracle once being embedded in the story and then at some point that would have got dropped and then on and on and on the the idea of that shape arc has got lost and we've had this you know everybody can picture the arc in their head it's a boat with a house on the top and, and that's been repeated and repeated and repeated down the years, and only the very latest version of that, to have an arc of that sort of shape in, is this new film, Noah, that's just about to come out, or probably by the time this broadcast is out. Um, I think you've seen it. I've seen this one.
2: Yes, the the plan was that the um, director said it was going to be faithful to the biblical original text. That was his idea, because so many people found that such an important piece of writing. And the arc, as they have it, is the same shape as the one in the Bible. Actually, you, you ask a very sensible question here, because when you think about the ark, you don't actually think about the one in the book of Genesis, because the one in the book of Genesis is a kind of oblong coffin shape, isn't it? And it's described there, the length and the breadth, and it's made of wood and everything, so it's there in the Bible. That was how they saw it in those days. Now actually, real people, if you ask them about Noah's Ark, they'll say something it looks like half a watermelon, which had got a high front and a high stern, with a little house in the middle, and a ladder. Okay? And this is because everybody's had a Noah's Ark in their lives as a toy. Now, the question is, where did that idea come from? Because you take the Tower of Babel. There are lots of marvellous, marvellous paintings about the Tower of Babel. And all the artists who did it read the description in Genesis and they created something with, like a wedding cake. Mm-hmm. So they painted things based on the biblical text. Mm-hmm. But the modern versions of Noah's Ark are nothing to do with the Bible. Well, that's a very strange matter. Mm-hmm. I don't understand how it can be. So in this film they're so faithful to the bible they had the same shape mm-hmm. and they made this thing out of wickerwork it looks like something from ikea but it's 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 there and it's there and it's that kind of shape so in that respect they did follow um, not in all other aspects of the plot did
1: they by any means follow but that's a up- matter for the personal judgment when you see the film well what, what i wanted to ask was are you able to recommend the film to us
2: well um in all candidness no
1: that's a perfect point for us to finish. I've been talking to Ervin Finkel. We've been talking about his book, "The Ark Before Noah: Decoding the Story of the Flood." So, Irving, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. This it's afternoon. been a
2: great pleasure for me. <laughs>
4: Charlotte Higgins and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show
3: about ideas and culture.
1: So I'm on the phone with the astrophysicist Lucianne Wolkowitz and Lucianne I've asked you to come up with something for us to talk about so what are we going to talk about?
3: Well we're going to talk about one of my favourite things in New York, the Temple of Dendur at the
1: Metropolitan Museum of Art. The Temple of Dendor It sounds like it sounds like Indiana Jones should be swinging from it or something. What is it?
3: Well, it's a temple, um, obviously, which uh, was given as a gift to the United States in the mid '60s. Um, it dates from, I believe, around. 15 BC or so, and it was brought over from Egypt in the mid 60s and then set up in the Sackler wing of the Metropolitan Museum in, I think, around the late 70s, maybe 1978 or so. And to tell you what it looks like, it's in a beautiful big room by itself with a wonderful reflecting pond, and an entire wall of that room is windows in the museum. So you can actually see it if uh, the museum is on the edge of Central Park in New York. So if you're in the park, you can actually peek in at the temple. And I uh, grew up very close to where that particular entrance of the park is. So I visited it a lot as a child.
1: (laughs) Can you remember when you first saw it?
3: You know, I can't remember when I first saw it because I saw it just about every single time I set foot in that museum. I was definitely in single digits of age. The The museum is located right near the playgrounds that I grew up playing on, which was just a couple blocks from our apartment. And so I must have seen it from the
1: time I was four years old on. Can you remember the first time then that it had an effect on you? Why choose this thing to talk about in particular? What does it mean to you?
3: Well, I always have loved visiting that room, I think because it, well, First of all, when I was growing up and even now, I really, really loved everything about ancient Egypt. Just something about it really captured my imagination. And I think what was so amazing to me about the temple was that it was a place where you could actually go and walk around and get a sense of what it actually was like. So the reflecting pond that is in the room with the temple, where it's actually set up, much as it was when it was discovered in situ in Egypt, the reflecting pond that's in there is meant to represent the Nile. And so it's a place where you could actually go and walk around as opposed to seeing just a picture in a book or a magazine.
1: What I love about this temple, having looked at photographs of it online since you've suggested we were going to talk about it, is the fact that, as you've already mentioned, it was gifted to America by the Egyptian government, actually for helping to save some other relics around the time because it had to be moved because the Aswan Dam was going to be built. And the previous interview that this little section is on the end of is with the the amazing Irving Finkel of the British Museum. And what's always implicit or explicit in any visit to the British Museum is how much of the stuff in there is, to put no fine point on it, plunder from the British Empire, basically. It's stuff <laughs> that we've picked up over the years from other places and, and still have, and there's often ongoing sort of battles about that. But what's interesting about this is first of all, it was gifted by the Egyptian government to America. But it's more interesting than that because it's not Egyptian. It was well, it is Egyptian, but it was it was commissioned by the Romans. So it's basically. It was a relic of an imperial occupation in itself. (laughs) Yeah, that's true.
3: Yeah, it's funny. The um, it sort of adds an extra dimension to the fact that the the room and visiting the temple in the museum has always uh, it's been very peaceful to me. Basically, you set anybody up by reflecting pond. There's sort of a natural (laughs) peacefulness to the whole thing. But what I was struck by, uh, you know, I moved back um, as you know a couple of years ago to New York, and I hadn't visited the temple for decades at that point. And so when I went back to visit it, you know, as a as an adult, so to speak, I went in there and what struck me was that I have always pictured the room as being totally empty except for me. Which of course cannot possibly be true. <laughs> because there is no room in New York except your own apartment that is empty of other people. It's just a very busy place. And you know, even when you go in sort of the middle of a weekday, the Temple of Dender always has people swarming all over the place. And I think that what my mind sort of captured was the the peacefulness that I feel in that room and just scrubbed all of the memory of there being, you know, a million tourists and cameras. <laughs> in the wing with me. And so it's a it's sort of a funny re-editing of my, my memory. But it is nice that it has sort of this peaceful background of being a gift, um, a gift given in thanks.
1: We haven't really talked about what it actually looks like. Can you describe it?
3: Sure. Um, So the way that it's set up as you enter the room, the reflecting pond is in front of you. And then to your right is the wall of windows, very, very tall, um, a two-story room, something like that, um, which I I gathered actually in in reading that I've done since that the window glass is stippled to resemble the light in the original site. And so you up along the pathway. And then uh, the temple itself is relatively small, you know, embossed uh, or rather carved on all sides um, with hieroglyphics uh, towards the base of the temple. There's um, these lovely carvings of papyrus and lilies meant to uh, sort of represent vegetation growing up out of the Nile. And you can go in the very front of it and, and walk around. It's not very big, but you can actually sort of stand inside of this little temple. And In addition to the original hieroglyphics that are all over it, um, it's also an example of graffiti. So (laughs) something we have a lot of in New York, um, particularly when I was growing up and less so now, is graffiti. And the temple, unfortunately, actually has a a lot of graffiti from around the 1800s or so in it. Remarkably, some of it is from some of the original Egyptologists, I guess, back in the day. It was just okay to carve your name on the things you discovered but I always remember being struck by that too that you know there you have not just the point of the fact that this exists and is incredibly old but then also you know oh, in the 1800s somebody came along and carved their name on it
1: <laughs> so I guess that resonated with me as well <laughs> there's also quite an interesting story I don't know how much of this you know about where it's actually sited, in that once it was gifted, there was a bit of a competition to decide where it was actually going to end up.
3: Oh yeah, I don't know about this actually.
1: Well, there was apparently it was supposed to be outside on the banks of the Potomac, and then they decided that it was it wouldn't be a good idea to have it outside because of the sandstone. So there was like a few places that competed to actually house it, and then the the Met won.
3: Yeah, I think I did hear something about that. I think that was probably a good move. It rains considerably more in
1: Washington, D.C.
3: <laughs> than it does in Egypt, I believe. <laughs> I mean, it, it's doing okay for something that's, you know, several thousand years old. But uh,
1: Apart from the graffiti.
3: Right, apart from the graffiti, but we wouldn't want to risk it parking it next to the Potomac, I'm sure.
1: That's the Temple of Dendor, which you can see at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, if you're over there. Lucianne, thank you very much for sharing it with us. Anytime. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture.
0: This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM.
1: You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little
0: If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening.